This information is designed to provide accurate and authoritative information with regard to the subject matter covered. It is offered with the understanding that the presenters are not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, or other professional services. If legal advice or other expert advice is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought. Good evening and welcome everyone. I have a surprise for you. I have a surprise for everybody who is on the call. This was totally unexpected, out of the blue. We have not seen this special person for, I think, five months. I think it's five months. But (laughs) So we have Brian Williams on tonight to join us to go over, go to college or skip it to invest in real estate. Brian? I figured you wouldn't be able to teach, you know, the one side. So I had to show up. This is true, actually. This is very true. The, so we can actually play the uh, Brian versus James game now. Before, uh, yes, I wasn't we sure can. if we, I wasn't sure if we could have. Oh mm. my goodness! So Brian, in all seriousness, thank you for coming on. We haven't seen Brian in like four months. So a quick update, Brian, before we jump into this. What have you been doing for the last five months? Not getting COVID. Not getting COVID is true. Been been staying safe. Uh, I've been shipping a literal ton probably more <laughs> into amazon uh so yeah that's been uh keep taking up a lot of time q4 is over we did really well so maybe i'll teach a class on that sometime maybe not and so you you taught a it. class you taught a class before on uh, side hustles and during that class you spent i don't know two hours of the three-hour class uh going over the Am- the fba fulfillment by amazon business so you like in, in that business in that class you basically said hey i do this this is like something i do so legitimately you actually still do that business is that correct yeah it's almost uh it's almost been it'll be five years in may five years in april actually okay so if you're willing to work hard for five years well worth it okay We'll have to get Even if you're willing us. to work hard for three years or two years, it's worth it. Okay, awesome. Well, so this is everything is brand new to Brian. So he hasn't seen anything in like a couple months. So uh, it's gonna be awesome. So upcoming classes. Here we go. Uh, next week we're gonna do how to improve cash flow as a workshop. So you probably have seen some of my classes before where I talk about lowest monthly payment guarantees and uh, maximum cash flow guarantees and my cash flow explosion class where I talk about all the different ways to massively improve cash flow stuff. Money is falling from the sky in Brian's camera. That's pretty awesome. Uh, so this is going to be a workshop. Uh, I was I was thinking to myself, you know, I probably should get on the phone with clients and and help them like go through each property and optimize and say, okay, like, 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 what are your expenses on this property? Let's go look at all the different ways you can reduce your expenses. Let's look at all the different income you have coming in the property and how can we maximize that? And let's take a look at some different things and, and try to help people one-on-one improve their cash flow. I was like, I don't know if I personally have the patience to get on the phone and do this process like 30 times, 50 times, 100 times. So I said, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I will teach you as a class. We'll pretend we're going to do one together live. And then if you want to listen to the recording and do it for other properties you own, you're welcome to do that. And you can repeat it as often as you want. You can listen to it every six months for all I, for all I know. You can just do it on the podcast. So that's going to be an awesome class. That's going to be next week. After that, we have the oversimplified financial independence with real estate class, which is all of the like rules of thumb on... You know, how many properties do I need? How much cash flow do I need? How long will it take me to achieve financial independence? You know, all this stuff that you want to do when you're like, say, 
sitting in a hot tub trying to figure out how long it's going to be before you could hit your fire number or, um, you know, retire early or whatever it is you're doing. You don't want to like whip out the real estate financial planner or have like your HP, whatever it is, 42, um, <laughs> whatever the business calculator. It's one like is. a 32 or 18 or something. Yeah. One of the, whatever the business one is that, which is not waterproof, I'm sure. Um, but you don't want to bring that in the hot tub. You want to be able to do this in, in your head. And so this is going to be like how to do really simplified financial independence math in your head with real estate. So that'll be an interesting class. Then the question hey, I get. So all the if time, it's oversimplified, yes. shouldn't it be like a 15 minute class? It will be really short. Okay. Cause it says six to eight. Well, that's in case it goes over with questions. Okay. <laughs> I expect 15 minute oversimplified class. Okay. That sounds fair. It should be like buy six houses, retire. <laughs> Buy a hundred houses, you're done. You'll, you'll, hit, <laughs> you'll be you'll be financially independent. Done. Consider everything solved. Oh my goodness, this is gonna be a long class. Uh, so ultimate guide to rent comps. We've been apart too long. This is the the, the challenge with it. It's like we haven't had this type of fun for a very long time, and so right. now it feels you're like hosed. I hope you only wrote an hour class because I'm gonna disturb it for the other hour. This this feels like you know when you haven't seen your brother in a while. And you get back and you're in front of your parents and it's Thanksgiving dinner and you guys just pick up where you left off misbehaving at the Thanksgiving dinner table with, you know, throwing some food and making weird jokes and all that stuff, just like back to normal. So, hey, do you know you're teaching on the third just to get back on track? Oh, yes, I am teaching ultimate guide to rent cops. So I get this question all the time, right? Like you did an amazing class going over like how to you know prepare your property for rent, how to analyze deals where you talk about rent comps. You, you basically have covered rent comps in all these different classes, little, piece, little bits and pieces of it. Um, but this is going to be the first class where I try to take all the stuff specifically related to rent comps and just put it into one condensed class where we focus in on that's all we're doing. That way, if you want to just know about how am I going to do rent comps, you don't have to go try to find the 30-minute segment in you know, preparing your property for leasing or um, how to analyze deals or how to analyze multifamilies. So we'll cover all that in one class and it'll be really good. I'll go over some things we haven't ever gone over before, like a rental meter report and how to use that in order to determine what rents are and things like that. So uh, Brian's going to be teaching that on February 3rd. And then... (laughs) And then I'm going to do pros and cons of every real estate investing strategy compared. So I'm going to try to fit it all in in one night. And I'm going to tell you, these are the benefits of this strategy. These are the downsides of it. These are the benefits of this strategy. These are the downsides of it. And we're going to basically do a entire two-hour segment on pros and cons of all the different strategies. You'll learn about a ton of strategies. Some of you may not have ever heard of, um, you know, like the option auction strategy for cash flow. Um, you know, we'll do lease options. We'll do subject to, we'll do buy and hold. We'll do stuff like uh, the ultimate strategy for real estate investing. We'll do some really crazy stuff. Um, and we'll cover a wide uh, kind of like cross area of pros and cons and what, what's this good for and what's it bad for and things like that. And then a class that you might have never thought was you would ever see James teaching asset protection. How did Why that are you even thinking about this? I agree. Why am I even thinking about this? I totally agree. But I've decided this is what I'm going to do. I'm not going to I'm not going to try to recreate Brian's seven hour monstrosity, which is amazing on like all the asset protection stuff. Instead, I'm going to give you my 10 top tips for asset protection as a real estate investor. 
and it'll be presented more like the nine nastiest nomad mistakes where I give you like my best points about it. And I'll give you the background and the information you need in order to have all that stuff for asset protection. But I, I will also tell you that Brian and I have slightly different ways that we approach asset protection. So it'll be different than Brian's. Brian is yeah. right. James is not right, but you'll still get mine anyway. And you'll be able Maybe to see you should do your top 10 and I'll do my top 10. Oh. And make it a four hour class. No, you get 20 minutes. <laughs> that sounds about right. <laughs> All right. So if you don't like the classes that I just outlined there, uh, you can suggest them. You can go to realestatefinancialplanner.com forward slash suggest, and you can suggest what you'd like to see. You could vote on what other people have suggested. And we do look at these to determine what, what I'm going to teach. And uh, you're welcome to go ahead and put new things up there or vote on someone else's, but just go there to do that. All right. So introductions via chat. If you would, please. If you would introduce yourself on chat, here's a pro tip, Brian. Brian, pay attention. Here's the pro tip. You ready? Make sure you switch it to all panelists and attendees, because if you don't switch it to all panelists and attendees, then everyone won't be able to see your message. So if you want, <laughs> there it is, pro. So if you want to go and uh, introduce yourself, uh, will it be better? Here's, I want you to guess. Will it be better to go to college and earn a lot more money or to skip it and invest in real estate. And if you want a hint, this is a podcast slash class for real estate investors. <laughs> so that should give you a clue as to which one you think is, uh, which way it's going to be. So uh, if you want to go do that in the chat window, make sure you say uh, who you are, where you're from. I guess I didn't put that in here. Who you are, where you're from. And then uh, will it get, will it be better to go to college or will it be better to invest in real estate? And uh, if you do have any questions throughout the webinar, we are live. And so we do take questions live when we do these and Brian will answer your questions. This is a recording. This is not a recording. <laughs> oh, well, it is, gosh. but someone is going to be listening to it and it's going to be a recording. <laughs> Who's going to win the election, Brian? <laughs> uh, We're trying to set the date, not, not to get an argument on, on the, uh, on the recording. Okay, here we go. Uh, Nomad Real Estate Investing Podcast, if you, if you <laughs> I can't imagine this happening, but if you enjoyed this class, there are other ones just like it. So you can go listen to like a hundred of these things. And uh, you know, no other class is going to be like this one. <laughs> this oh is going to be the number one listened to class of all time. Oh and it won't goodness. have anything to do with the actual content. <laughs> <laughs> this is the class where James and Brian went off the rails. This is, it's going to oh go viral. There's going to be clips of us. See, oh you've gosh. already like you've already <laughs> left your your deck. I hit the escape button, grabbing the drink. Oh my goodness! Okay, we're in trouble, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen. I'm in trouble. We are in trouble. Next slide. They know all where right. the podcast is. Okay, yeah, go get the podcast. Okay, so here we go. In all seriousness, go to college or skip it to invest in real estate. So, uh, I think that's what we're covering tonight. So I'm going to handle a couple just of my base assumptions, uh, really, really just upfront so that we get them out of the way. Um, I'm assuming that you guys are going to want to change my base assumptions. And so at the end of the presentation, I'm going to give you the links to be able to copy these scenarios into your own realestatefinancialplanner.com account. It's free for you to do. And then you could change any of the assumptions. So if, you, if you're in a state where the college education is not what I'm about to tell you, or you, know, you think your income in a specific degree field is going to be a lot higher or a lot lower, or the economics of the properties we're going to do are very, very different in your market, I've got great news for you. I assume that that is true. 
And so I'm going to give you links to be able to copy my base assumptions in there. And then you're going to be able to go modify them and change any assumption you want to make them more like your reality and change whatever it is. So here are my assumptions for tonight. We'll start there. Um, we're going to assume that this person is going to go to a CSU type school, Colorado State University, for those that are not local, and that uh, according to the web, uh, the in-state Colorado resident sticker price is like just under $27,000 per year, and that does include tuition, books and supplies, other fees, room and board, so it does include housing and food um, and other expense budget type stuff. In order to make the math a little bit easier, because I didn't want to have like everyone starting with, you know, $108,000, I just called it $25,000. So I'm assuming it's $25,000. Um, I think it does go up 3% a year, if I, if I remember correctly. It's been a little while since I set up the, the actual assumptions. So it's $25,000 the first year, a little bit, 3% more than that second year, 3% more the third and fourth. And I'm assuming you're going to college for four years. And then the other part of this kind of came up was... Um, do college graduates make more money than non-college graduates? And it turns out, yes, according to apparently APLU.org, which I have no idea who that is. I just did a Google search. Um, but the Google search came up and told me that on average, uh, degree holders, bachelor's degree holders earn on average $32,000 more per year than those whose highest degree is a high school diploma. So for the sake of this presentation, I've assumed that if you went to college and you have a degree, you are now earning $30,000 more than the person who didn't go to college, who's real estate investing to start with. And so that's where it starts with. Okay, here we go. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. I'm kind of paraphrasing some Robert Frost there, although I think that is a pretty direct quote. I didn't look it up though. So here's where we start talking about this. Tammy sent me we, we, have this, we, we have this ongoing debate in our family about college and stuff like that. And, and to give people some background on this, my family is extremely pro-college. My mother has multiple master's degrees. She has her PhD. So she has her doctorate in nursing. She was a college professor. She taught people how to be nurses. Um, she also nursed, which was active nursing. But um, so like lots of degrees there. My brother has a master's degree. My brother has his medical doctor degree. Um, this huge emphasis on education and higher education and college stuff. I started college at 15, but I didn't get my degree. I ended up leaving college early and um, ended up basically operating nuclear reactors in the Navy and then also starting a tech company instead of getting my degree. So I am actually very pro college in general to understand. Are you giving me a weird look, Brian? I am actually very pro college. Yeah, so I'm, I'm very pro college. I'm very pro education. Um, I, I definitely read a lot, self-educate myself. Um, I actually think I read more than anyone else I know, honestly. Um, I can't think of anyone else that reads as much as I do. But Warren, I mean, Warren is out reading you. Warren Buffett? Yeah. How many books is he reading? Like 400 a year. Oh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not anywhere. I don't know. He reads like hours and hours a day. He does do that. And a lot of them are like financial statements, stuff like that, and newspapers and things of that nature. I tend to read books. But anyway, I, I read a lot. And so I'm extremely pro education. This could, this class could come across as education bashing. And I don't think that it should. I think that um, having a degree makes a lot of sense for a lot of folks. I think that not having a degree is the right choice for some people. And in my case, my kids, one of them went to college and got a degree. The other one did not or has not yet, although they are going back to school. Um, so 
I think we're very pro college. And so I don't want to come across as this is education bashing in any way. I think having a degree and getting a good paying job can definitely help you qualify for loans, um, which is super important if you're going to buy traditional conventional type financing type stuff, you're not going to buy creatively. So that's super helpful. So let's go and look at the uh, setup for the problem. Um, during COVID, it's kind of ongoing discussion in our household, but during COVID, uh, many of the universities were shut down or highly limited in-person um, kind of like education. Students were wondering why they were paying these hefty fees in order to learn via Zoom. Because in my opinion, the Zoom experience is very different than in-person uh, kind of class. And Brian, that's one, that's one of the things that Brian has said to me is that um, the Zoom experience of going to class is extremely different. It's very, very different for him than attending a class live. And he definitely prefers the live class. He likes being with people. He's super extroverted. He likes hanging out after class. He likes being able to see people's uh, faces as he teaches, make sure that they're engaged and not doing like a million other things. And, and you know, there's a lot of stuff like that that you can't get if you're doing Zoom. Is that, is that not true? Yeah, I think I think for the most part the <clears throat> the disadvantage here is that people do ask questions and they're great questions, but overall the questions and the dialogue and the back and forth but that where it gets to be more than one person in an actual physical setting, you miss out on a lot of that. And a lot of times those are the like small stories where you learn something about oh, someone else did it this way, I did it this way and why and then you can dig in. And here it just doesn't happen in the same way. Yeah. And I think there's way more and you're probably going to get to get to this, but there's way more than to college than just the actual learning. Totally agree. Right? There's the relationship there's, component. There's networking. There's yeah. like the relationships with instructors. There's, you know, being maturity forced. building in a lot of senses totally. too. Yes. Like and being I, away I've, I've hired people when I worked at Microsoft, I've hired people that didn't have degrees and I've hired people that have degrees. And there are definitely in many cases differences. So yeah. And some of them are good and some of them are not good. Yeah, I totally agree. <clears throat> and I definitely had a really good college experience. Um, so th this is not intended to be a data debate of like college versus not college in that way. I'm going to show you a lot of math and a lot of modeling, and I will make a case for which one could mathematically be better. But there's a lot of assumptions and a lot of variability and a lot of things could change based on a lot of things. How so, hard is the math going to be? Are we going to need a college degree to understand it? <laughs> That's pretty funny. You will not need a college degree because <laughs> I don't have a college degree. There you go. <laughs> okay. So uh, some continue to question the value of college. Uh, so Tammy sent me this article. This was a couple months ago. I think it was like in November or something like that. And uh, it's an article from the Wall Street Journal. The link is on the page there if you want to go do it. I'm not going to read that loud for the audio, but if you want to go watch the video, you can go ahead and access the link to the article. And it talks about, is this the end of college as we know it? So uh, I'll get into my assumptions, but you're going to want to change exactly what I'm going over. Uh, I'm going to provide you links to the four different scenarios at the end. I'm going to start with primarily two different really basic scenarios. Uh, someone who does a very traditional go to college, get a really high paying job, save a very large amount of money. In fact, the difference between what the person who went to college gets and what the person who didn't go to college earns. So basically, they're going to save that whole differential and invest it in stocks in order to achieve financial independence early and see how much quicker they can do it by investing that whole difference, everything extra that they earn by going to college in the stock market. And we're going to see what ends up happening. So I'll start with that. Then I will go ahead and say, hey, Nomad is an unfair advantage for this person competing. So what happens if the college person decides they're also going to Nomad as soon as they get out of school? So they get the benefit of all the extra income, 
and doing the nomad strategy, which is what the other non-college person is going to do, which by the way, I did not go to college. Brian has his, I think bachelor's or bachelor's in computer engineering yeah. software is a computer engineering. Ah, uh, yeah. Computer engineering. Yeah. So Brian has his degree in computer engineering. So Brian is going to be the prototypical college graduate tonight. I am going to be the prototypical uh, non-college graduate who does the alternative plan, even though this was not my plan. Um, so I'll, I'll take the role of non-college person. And unlike the other class where Cashflow Brian versus Appreciation James and Brian, Brian just crushed it, tonight's not your night, Brian. <laughs> So, All right, we're going to change the assumptions at the end and make it work out. Okay, that is true. We'll see how it goes. Uh, so I'm going to do the two scenarios where we do, one's going to invest in stocks, the other one's going to invest in real estate. Then I'm going to have the college graduate, Brian, uh, also do Nomad, and we'll compare head-to-head of getting the degree and doing Nomad to not getting a degree and doing Nomad. And then at the end, I'm going to imagine that the non-college person does not have roommates the first four years. Okay, because I assume that the person starting off got roommates because when you go to college, you have roommates. So I said, hey, why not have that same experience where you get roommates, but now you get the benefit of getting a little extra income by having two roommates while you were supposed to be in college instead. So we're going to go over that example and you'll get links to be able to modify this. So what is the same? I had to start somewhere. And so this is my sort of like stake in the ground of my baseline assumptions. I assume that your grandma and grandpa or mom and dad, you know, they put away, you know, $100 a month, uh, you know, since the day you were born. And 18 years later, they have $100,000 um, saved up for college. And Brian's looking at me like my math is wrong. But if you do um, grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, it's $200 a month. That's $2,400 a year. You just said $100 a month. Each. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, mean- I think you... I think you get pretty close to that. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, Brian will do the math. So if you save for 20 years and do that, uh, the family has saved up $100,000 for you to either go to college or it's sitting in an account for you to use whatever way you can convince grandma and mom and dad to let you use it. And mom and dad say, yes, you have a job. You can go ahead and use that in order to invest in real estate. You can't just go spend it and party. Uh, but yes, you can go ahead and, and invest it towards your early retirement. And so that's the plan. Both kids receive the full $100,000 upon leaving high school. They both invest it in the stock market or equivalent, and they earn 8% until they spend it. So any money that comes out, they're not earning 8% on, but any money they still have left in there because they're only paying for college as, it, as it's needed. And they're only paying for the down payments as they need it. Uh, so they're earning 8% on the money in the stock market for that entire time. Financial independence for them is defined as they need to replace a $50,000 per year passive income. That's what they're both trying to get. So it's cash flow from any rental properties after all the expenses. So taxes, insurance, maintenance, vacancy, all that stuff. It's got to be positive cash flow after all those expenses, plus 4% safe withdrawal rate on any money they have invested in stocks. So it's a combination of those two. So any money they have invested in stocks, that counts toward their passive income of $50,000 a year. And also any cash flow from any rentals that they have would also count toward their cash flow as well. You're giving me a weird look. Is there something going on? Nope. Just thinking about why it's the same for both. I really think about this in terms of your two sons, right? Like one does not need the same amount as the other, the way it stands. So like if you are a college grad and you are adapted to a 
perhaps higher income form of life, technically you should need more. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. And, and so when we talked about, when I, when I thought about setting up this problem, I did originally have it so that the college graduate needed to have a higher threshold. In it just order sucked to so much worse for me. So yeah, it was, it. it was unfair. It was actually like it was handicapping them unnecessarily because I wanted to make it close, right? And so what I basically said is the base assumption is they're both living the exact same standard of living. They're both living on 50K a year. The college graduate person is actually going to take all the extra money that they're earning from having that degree and they're going to invest it. Whereas the non-college graduate doesn't take any of the extra money because they don't have any extra money. They're only earning $50,000 a year and that's what they're living on and they're saving zero extra dollars. Yeah. So that's sort of the assumption to set this whole thing up, which is crazy, okay? All right, so all of the properties are the same that we're gonna use in this example. So I'm assuming that this is a nomad property that you live in until you buy your next owner-occupant property. And when you buy your next owner-occupant property, you convert the previous one to a rental and you do the same thing as over and over again until in this example, they're acquiring 10 properties, okay? And the uh, me as a non-college graduate would be investing in 10 properties to begin with. Brian, for the first group, for, for the first example, is not buying 10 properties. He's buying one to live in. Um, and then later on, I'll compare what if he does Nomad 2 and he buys 10, okay? So this is a $350,000 property in our marketplace and it goes up at a rate of 3% per year. Now, if I told you Northern Colorado markets appreciate 3% a year, you're like per quarter, you know, uh, we're, we're seeing much higher appreciation rates than 3% historically, but right now I'm using this as a long-term average, which is actually a little bit higher than this too, but I'm saying over a long period of time, we're using 3%, which is the inflation rate. 5% of the purchase price for down payment. So you're going to put 5% down when you buy the property. 1% of the purchase price is going to be in closing costs. There are no seller concessions. So the seller is not contributing any money towards you buying the property. I'm assuming that the interest rate for your mortgage is 2.75. And that is a 30-year mortgage. Um, and this is actually a little bit different than what I what we're actually at right now in our marketplace, it's a little bit more conservative. And I'm gonna show you actual numbers here. There's, a, there's like a tangent in this presentation about some really cool financing stuff. And that they have private mortgage insurance when you buy a property with less than 20% down. So they're only putting 5% down. So they have 0.5% of their loan balance uh, each month until they get below 80% loan to value. And that is their private mortgage insurance rate. I'm assuming that they're earning $2,100 per month in rent on this property. And that also keeps pace with inflation at 3% per year. I'm assuming that there is a uh, vacancy allowance of 3%, that 10% of the monthly income from the rent is for maintenance on the property. So we're setting aside money for maintenance. We are factoring that in. And that 1% of the property value is for taxes. Uh, so their property taxes are about $3,500 per year on that property. And that 0.4% of that property are insurance. That's your insurance payment for having a rental property. And that's $1,400 per year uh, at the start. And it goes up as the property value increases. This is a residential property. And we assume 15% of the value of it is the value of the land for when we calculate the depreciation benefit. And we are also assuming that you are managing the properties yourself. Although I'll show you a little bit here in a second. In fact, one of the next slides that uh, when it actually turns positive, if you decide to have a professional manager. 
Okay. So Brian, since you're on, do you think this is an amazing, unrealistic property? Did I like weight the the presentation in favor of the real estate investor? Mm, no, probably not. Yeah. So I've had several clients in this last 12 months buy properties just like this. Um, and it is, if you think about it, this property is only slightly positive cash flow, assuming they manage it themselves and you take into account that you are getting cash flow from depreciation. So if you take into account the tax benefits that you have by owning this property as a rental, it's only slightly positive if you bought it with 5% down there. It is not positive if you put, uh, if you if you have a professional property manager, which would be this green area. And it's not positive if you exclude the uh, cash flow from depreciation, which is this yellow area. If it was, if it was cash flow with you managing yourself, it'd be in this green area. So this property is just about break even a little bit positive if you take into account the tax benefits. Okay. So it's not amazing. And over time, and this is an example of the first property you buy. So the, the person actually, the I, I guess, live in this property for about a year. Then I convert it to a rental. By the way, the black line is rent. And so rent kind of goes from zero because when I was living in it to about, I don't know, 20 something, 2100. And you can see it's still in that yellow area, which means that it's just slightly positive, including cash flow from depreciation. Then eventually, a few years later, it becomes positive if you're just managing it yourself. And then a few years later, it actually would have been positive if you had a professional property manager. In this example, we are having you manage the property for the entire time. And so you can see that you're just kind of paying yourself for managing the property. Any questions on that, Brian? Nope. Okay, cool. Just like the last slide said. Nope. Nope. Okay. So I, I want to do a whole class on this, but I will cover some of it here. And maybe I don't have to do the extra class. So I, I got on the phone with Matt Weaver, who is a mortgage broker with Excel Financial Group. Um, and we updated this spreadsheet. This spreadsheet is a spreadsheet I usually include when we do the financing class. And the last time I taught that class, I don't think I updated it. I just sort of said, this was it from whenever I did it last time. But I think I'm going to start updating this on a regular basis, once a quarter, once every other half, you know, half a year, whatever it is, um, so that you can see the differences between all these different loan types. So I got on the phone with Matt and I went through and I said, okay, Matt, I'm not trying to ask you for quotes because you can't give quotes generically, right? You have to give very specific information. So these are the credit scores that we use in order to tell him what rate we wanted, kind of right down here in the bottom. This is a minimum credit score in order to get that particular loan product. These are the three government, quasi-government type loans, FHA with 3.5% down, USDA with 0% down. VA with 0% down. And I assumed we were buying a $400,000 property. Um, and then I showed conventional loans, the two different 3% down programs, one where the lender pays the mortgage insurance, one where you decide to pay the uh, mortgage insurance monthly. And then we did the 5% where the lender pays it and 5% where the um, uh, you pay it monthly. And then we did a chaffa loan. And then I did four different, I guess that's five. We did five different investment loans, everything from 15% down with mortgage insurance all the way to 40% down. And I show the difference between you know what the closing costs are, if you have upfront mortgage insurance, if you have monthly mortgage insurance, what the interest rate was for that particular day with that particular credit score, this loan amount. And I showed you what the monthly payment was. And then this chart shows you the monthly payment for those different loan options. And the reason I wanted to show you this and some of the slides that follow is I want to point out that the monthly payment for someone who chose to do a 5% down 
lender paid uh, PMI. So basically you take it in the rate and the, and the mortgage payment for someone who put 15% more down, 20% down, and got an investor loan, non-owner occupant, is only $10 different per month. And I'm going right to pause now. right now. This is like a snapshot in time for this particular situation for a, a fictitious $400,000 property. But the reason why I point this out, they're usually relatively close. This is exceptionally close. This is remarkably close. But I want to pause for dramatic effect here and, and explain that again. So someone who puts 5% down, moves into a property and lives there, aka a nomad, versus someone who puts 20% down, in this case, $60,000 more, actually only has a $10 per month difference in monthly payment. That's crazy. Totally crazy. Interest rates are awesome. Yeah, I mean, this is partly the owner-occupant interest rate thing, right? So this shows you all the different interest rates. This is the the monthly payment if you had put 40% down. This is the one if you put uh, 30% down. This is 25% down. This is 20% down. This is 15% down, I think. Yep. And then this one is the Chaffa loan. This is the um, 5% down lender paid uh, MI. This one's where you do 5% down. You're paying the monthly MI. This one is 3% down lender paid PMI. This one is you paying the monthly PMI for 3% down. Then this is VA, which is awesome. This is, um, uh, which one is that? Oh, this is 0% down USDA. And then this is 3.5% down FHA. So you can see the relative size down payments for all these different loan programs and down payment amounts. So it's kind of gives you an idea of like how big they are. This is just the ones for the owner occupant all on one chart to give you a little bit of a visual if you're just doing owner occupant to compare them. And as you might've guessed, these are just the investor ones. If you wanna go pause on the screen and look at those just to see the investor sizes for those. And then here are the 5% downs included with the investor ones. So you can kind of compare to do that. So Gian says, could you explain the lender paid PMI, please? I thought borrower was always responsible. Yeah, and if you want more detail on what I'm about to say, Gian, we have an entire two-hour class on private mortgage insurance. You would really enjoy that. It's got like two hours worth of excruciating detail about PMI, private mortgage insurance, and all the different ways to handle it and the returns and how that impacts it. But here's what lender paid PMI is. You understand that if you go in to a lender and you say, I would like to give you more money, you can buy your interest rate down, right? You understand that idea that you can go and pay the lender money and buy your interest rate down your loan. Okay. There's an opposite to that. In other words, you could say to the lender, lender, instead of actually me buying the interest rate down, what I'd like to do is I will voluntarily take a higher interest rate for the entire 30-year period of the loan, and you give me money instead of me giving you money to buy it down. In that case, the lender gives you a credit up front in order to actually take a voluntarily higher interest rate loan. And if you could take a credit big enough to cover the upfront private mortgage insurance fee, the lender can voluntarily have you take a higher rate where they in one big lump sum pay a one-time upfront PMI premium instead of you having to do monthly. So you take a higher interest rate loan voluntarily and you don't have monthly PMI. And you have to run it both ways to find out which one was better. Because as you can see right here, this is you paying it monthly, 2096. This is you taking it in the rate, 2063. And so that is one of the interesting things you could do. 
And GN says, got it. So you never have to refi. That's a really deceptive comment. There's a lot more to this conversation and I'm not going to go there tonight. Go watch the private mortgage insurance class because most of the time, excuse me, most of the time we do not recommend having the lender do the PMI because in this case, the PMI would fall off if you did the monthly option when your loan to value got at 80% with the one where the lender pays it, that interest rate remains in effect for 30 years. So that's not true, what you just said. So you never have to refi. Um, you, you could make a case that you'd voluntarily want to take this 2096 one if you thought you were going to hold the loan beyond when you got to 80% loan to value, because once it gets to 80% loan to value, the PMI might drop off. And instead of being 2096, it may be like 1900 at that point. And so you got to figure out how long you're going to hold it. That's what that whole two hour private mortgage insurance class is about. So you can dig into that. Um, Apparently, I put the same chart in twice. <laughs> awesome for me. Okay, cool. All right, so one of the things, you guys may have seen this in email, but one of the things I started doing is I added this new report to the Real Estate Financial Planner where you can go ahead and see, and I know this class is about college versus not college, just sort of a tangent on the financing part because I think it's related. So this is a new report that allows you to have any properties you own and it will show you the return. It's basically my cash flow quadrant. Um, you know, return on investment quadrant, return in dollars quadrant, return on equity quadrant, where it shows you what each of the four areas of return are, plus reserves, and plus a total to show you the total amount. And I did is I broke it down using that same table I made right here. And I showed you all the loan products as if you bought them here. And it shows you all the appreciation is the same because appreciation is always going to be the same. The cash flow differs quite a bit. The debt pay down portion varies depending on how much you owe on the loan and your interest rate. And then your cash flow from depreciation is the same because you're buying the same exact property. Then the amount you need in reserves varies a little bit based on how much your monthly payment is and how much that means in means you should have in reserves. And then the total amount's going to vary. So you can look at the dollar amounts and see how these different loans vary. And this chart shows you the exact same thing we just looked at here in the table, except visually you can see all the different loans and all the different return in dollars you're getting broken out for all these. Now, Brian, if we're buying the same property and the property is going up the same value, appreciation is going to be the same for that property no matter what loan you get. Is that correct? Yeah, it's based on the value of the house. Value of the house, not value of the loan. And cash flow from depreciation, your tax benefits of owning that property are the same regardless of what loan you get. Is that also correct? Also based on the value of the property and minus the land. Yes. So since they're same property and we're assuming that they're the same, we can get rid of those. And so really what we want to look at is just the two things, cash flow and how much your debt pay down return is. And that's what this chart is. All I did was toggle off appreciation, the cash flow from depreciation, which they're the same no matter what property. And I removed the total, which is that little background thing that shows up there. And now you can easily compare these loans to decide, hey, if I'm not going to go to college and I'm going to get these loans, what one should I get? And you can see the difference between all these. Now, this is dollars in return. It doesn't take into account how much you put down. So for example, this one on the end, you're getting $4,967 in cash flow a year but you had to put 40% down in order to get that. Whereas 
you're getting negative $543 per year in cash flow for doing a VA loan when you put nothing down. So really what you want to do is you want to do this number divided by how much you put down or how much equity you have in the property. And that's what this table is. This table now shows you what the return you got is divided by how much equity you have. And so now it shows you all the numbers divided by your equity position, which is, which is really how much you put down plus some closing cost type stuff. Actually, it's just your uh, down payment in this case. It shows you the dollar amounts. Can you go back a slide? So for clarity, the, you didn't sum the totals here, right? No. Okay. That's a little confusing. Yes. I would have rather have seen what the actual height of the bar is total, right? So I can tell what actually is the best. It's, it's, not, it's not even that. I personally think that this is a stepping stone to get to what I'm about to show you, Okay, which is the return on equity, right? Because really, it doesn't matter that you made $8,000. It really matters that you made $8,000 putting nothing in the deal, or I made $8,000 putting $120,000 down. Yes, depending on your goals. Agreed. I totally agree. But I think for most people, it's a function of what did I have to invest to get this money? And when you look at that, now we're looking at this. Right. There is, this just reminds me of that really when I bought the house on 4th Street, which I don't own anymore. So good luck if you're listening to the podcast. <laughs> um, you know, when I bought that house, if you recall, I was like, at this rate of return, I want to invest more money into the house. Right. Right. But you, you couldn't because it was a low cost property and it didn't make sense. Well, I did. I put more down. Uh, okay, I see what you're saying, because you actually looked at the, the spreadsheet and you said, if I put more down, I actually get better return at a higher percentage, but better to put more into the deal. Yes, even though my my return, it's a really weird thing, right? Like I was like, instead of putting 20% down, I want to put 25% because even though my return on my investment is going to be slightly lower, the rate of return is still so good. I would like to put more and more money into that property. Yes, so there's some weirdness that happens. Yeah, and so th- this is some of those examples, right? Like when yep. you put more down, these returns are lower. So for example, 20% down, you're getting an overall return of 13.98% on your money. But if you put 25% down, it actually goes up. You got 15.99% return on your money, but then it goes back down when you put 30% down to 14.41. And then it goes down even more when you put 40% down. So this one, the best of the investor loan options in this case would have been putting 25% down. And so doing this for your different loans or doing this for different strategies you're applying, I think makes a lot of sense. And so this is a visual showing that same chart that I just showed you here for this stuff. And I probably should do a whole class on this, but I wanted to expose it to you so that you got an idea of the different financing things and some of the crazy financing things that are going on here. Oh, one other thing. Remember we said we were using, uh, I think we said 2.75 for the loan. Yeah, so we are using 2.75 for the loan. This loan that we're using right now is 2.625. So we're conservatively high in the loan that we picked for doing the presentation tonight. Okay, back to our normal, normally scheduled podcast with should I skip college or should I invest in real estate? So what is different? We kind of talked about what was the same. You know, they're trying to get $50,000 in passive income. They both got $100,000 as soon as they graduated high school that they could use either to go to college or to invest in real estate. So what is different? So the college kid is going to pay a college cost of $25,000 per year. And that includes their room and board. So that's everything included. That's what I assume there. 
after college, they end up earning $80,000 per year. Okay, so that's a higher wage. That also adjusts with inflation. And they are saving slash investing $30,000 of their $80,000 income per year. So they're going to college and they're saying, look, I, I can live on this $50,000. That's my lifestyle because this is going to be the same lifestyle as the person that skips college. $50,000 is the same lifestyle each one is earning, each one is living at. But the one person's earning $80,000 a year and they're going to take that full $30,000 and they're going to invest it. So they're going to invest much more than the college, the person who skips college, who's going to invest zero after they invest their initial 100K. Okay. Um, after they're done with college, they save up for a down payment and they buy a house to live in as soon as they can. They're at a higher income, which means likely a higher income tax, which may mean slightly worse standard of living if they're saving $30,000 and they have to pay their taxes on that and they're really trying to live off the 50K. So in a weird sort of way, they actually are living a slightly worse standard of living unless they decide to do, you know, tax benefited type of investments, you know, tax deferred off the top type stuff. And you can kind of optimize for that. So in this case, though, they might have a slightly lower standard of living than the person who skips college is only earning 50 a year and has depreciation uh, from owning real estate, rental real estate. Okay. So the person who skips college, they don't have any cost to college. They get to have that full hundred thousand dollars that they get to use to invest. They're earning $50,000 per year immediately. So maybe they go and they're working a, you know, a trade, a skilled trade type job. And that's what the going rate is for doing that. Um, you know, whatever it is that they're able to earn 50K a year. Uh, but that's what I assume that they're starting out with. So they went to trade school. How much did that cost? No, and maybe they just apprenticed on the job. Maybe they're, you know, plumber's apprentice and they, you know, did the plumbing work and they have a, a master plumber who watches their work and makes sure they're doing it right. But they're the actual person with their hands dirty. I don't know. Something like that. I didn't go into that much detail about what the job was. I know. Okay? Yeah. I, there's a part of me that thinks about like how realistic is 50K right, right there, like as a 19 year old, 18 year old. Okay, let me let me make it a different way. Let's say the person decides to skip college, they marry their high school sweetheart, and now it's two people earning $25,000 a year. And you could do that earning $12 an hour. Sure, and the other couple that's married is earning $160,000 a year only spending, you know, 50 of it. Agreed. <laughs> or maybe the two college. Maybe I don't know. What do you want to? What do you want me to do? I just threw out a I'm way just, to solve I'm the problem. I'm just pointing it out. That's all. Yeah. Like I think there's like it's fine for the scenario for tonight, right? But I think there's there's so much variance here that's really hard to encompass. Yeah. Right. I like, totally agree. You could totally get 50k, uh, but that's not the majority of people I think that are graduating high school and getting jobs. So. I especially yeah. recently hiring people that are in that boat, they are not making 50 K. So there's people on the uh, chat thing saying $24 an hour is, is so feasible. And Jason says welders with a six month trade school certificate earn more than 50 K. So I don't know. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, you may make that right. But there's a whole <laughs> bunch of variants. Cause I know you're about to destroy me cause I'm the guy that's in college. So I'm trying to tee it up that it's, BS basically. <laughs> you tried to discredit me before I even get started yeah, with the presentation. That's my only chance oh my tonight is to discredit oh you. Okay. Right. Uh, but you could totally have the person that went to college, right, who may have a lower lifestyle if they're really comparable. I do agree with that. 
but they may also have decided, you know what, I'm choosing a lower lifestyle. I'm going to save 50 K a year and try and blow it out of the water that way. Yeah. So lots of different things. There's or they took a loan to get through college and they still have a hundred K. Ooh. Yes. There's so many options, right? Like I could have picked any of these things. So I had to try to pick a apples to apples ish yeah. comparison. I mean, you can't do yeah. anything there. I know. Okay. Skip at college. They buy a house to live in immediately. They have a lower income and depreciation from the real estate. So they're likely in a lower income tax bracket. So they probably have a slightly higher standard of living from that. Okay. So really basic difference here. The person who decides to invest in real estate and skip college, they buy a property month zero, essentially month one, excuse me. They live there for 12 months. Then they convert that one to a rental. They buy another property to move into with 5% down. They move into there. They continue this process, buying a property about every 12 months, provided they have enough saved up. And they eventually get to the point where they have 10 properties, nine rentals, one that they still live in. Okay. That's where they ultimately get to. And it takes them, I don't know, a little over a hundred months to do that, to get to 10. Okay. The person who decides to go to college is in college for the first 48 months. Then they actually take a few months to save up their down payment in order to buy one house. And all they do is buy that one house. They're going to take their money and they're going to invest in the stock market. Otherwise, for the first scenario, we're going to get to a second one in a second. Okay. So the person who decides to buy these nine rentals and one property to live in eventually starts having their total true cash flow, which takes into account cash flow and their cash flow from depreciation and any CapEx. And it doesn't, it's not positive really early on. Like they're actually a little bit negative early on, but eventually they start having a little bit of positive cash flow doing this. And it grows and grows and grows and grows and grows until eventually they start paying off properties and cash flow really starts to take off and they get a lot more than they need. Remember, they're, the amount of money that they need is about uh, $50,000 a year, a little over $4,000 a month. If we adjust for inflation, because we're trying to have the $4,000 and change per month for inflation, uh, you can see the amount that they do. It takes them to about here to get to the point where they have enough passive income in order to be able to not work anymore and live passively off their income. And I want to point out that they make way more than they need. Like you look at where they get to like $8,000 a month, they eventually get to the point where they have more than double what they need to live on in retirement. So their lifestyle could be much higher than what they're able to do you know, 30 something years in the future. Okay. And the other person has no rental income. So not have any rentals. They're going to have income coming in from the 4% safe withdrawal rate of any money they have invested in stocks. And we'll eventually compare them both to a nomad. Yeah. So just, I mean, so yeah, but Jason says buzzkill bride and then makes a very, you know, true comment, which is a lot of people are making 15 bucks an hour at Starbucks or whatever. With a degree. Yeah. With a, with a degree. Yes. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it, the, the coin goes both ways. Right. But, you know, Joe basically says, you know, the, the friendliest guy on the face of the planet, right. Basically <laughs> says, so maybe it's the person that makes a difference and not the school. And I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Like you can take somebody who went to, you know, 10 years of schooling and they're just not going to cut it. Or you can take somebody who didn't finish high school and they're killing it. Yeah. So schooling, like, if you are determined enough and you have enough perseverance and grit, it doesn't matter how much school you have. Agreed. Okay. So how much negative cash flow did the person who decided to invest in real estate with those properties, which weren't amazing, how much negative cash flow did they have total amongst all the properties over the entire investment period? And it turns out they had a little bit less than $4,000 total in negative cash flow over the entire period. 
here's one of the interesting things that comes up. So if you think about this, the person who decides to invest in real estate, what are the, one of the things they're doing is they're taking their money and they're putting it to work for them earlier. The person who decides to um, you know, go buy a single property later, they're waiting four years to even get any of the return that they're getting on that one property that they buy. So this is the total return on equity that somebody would get just from the appreciation. Property values tending to go up each year a little bit. And so you could see that they're getting almost a 60% return on their money when they buy that first property. It's going to properties going up 3% a year, but they only put 5% down. So they actually are getting a highly leveraged return on that. And every time they buy a new property, it bumps up a little bit so that you could see the jagged edges each time they buy a property. So because they start early, they're getting an awesome return on their money way early on where the other college person waits you know, four years plus in order to buy their first property and they only buy the one. And then slowly over time, it just goes down to be whatever the unleveraged return is from appreciation, okay? So you can see that there's a lot more return and earlier. Similar idea for the cash flow part of it. The person who went to college has zero return from their cash flow. This person starts off with some negative return when they have negative cash flow. And then slowly it grows over time to the point where it gets to be about 3% until it gets paid off. And then they have about, uh, you know, whatever it is, 5% or so at the end of the chart. Okay. This is the total return on equity from paying down on the loan. So what's the return they're getting from that? Since the uh, person going, to, and this is just on rentals, by the way, it's not on the owner-occupied properties. So the person that went to college doesn't have any return from paying down their loan because this is just on rentals. But the person who had the rentals starts getting this when they convert it to a rental. And that's almost 20% per year to start with and declines very rapidly until it gets to the point where it's like, you know, sub five. Um, and they're seeing that. But this is overall return in addition to the returns they're getting elsewhere, like appreciation and debt pay down and cash flow. This is the debt pay down return. Do you have a question? Okay. And then this is the return they're getting from the cash flow from depreciation. It's almost 6% just from the tax benefits that you get from owning the rental property. So the appreciation return is speculative because we don't really know what property values are going to go up. The cash flow one's a little bit speculative because we don't really know what rents are going to do in the future. But this one is the tax benefits you're getting. So unless they change the tax code, which is possible they could, but historically it's been pretty stable. They're getting this return as long as the tax code is stable with this. And the debt pay down one is also a contract with the lender. So unless that lender changes the contract, which I've not really heard them doing, um, you're getting that return as well. Okay. Total property values. So the uh, college person went and bought one property here, and this is their property value increasing over time. Uh, the person who invested in real estate bought several properties, keeps stair-stepping up every time they buy one. And so they have almost $5 million worth of assets uh, after they're done acquiring properties. And then those just continue to keep going up at about 3% per year. So they've got a very large asset base that they've acquired, which is continuing to go up. The other person has a house that's only one house, but they have assets and stocks, which we're going to see in a second here. Total property value, same idea. Every time they buy a property, the total of all their property values is increased till when, when it's inflation adjusted, it's about $3.5 million in today's dollars, no matter when it is in the future. And then this person bought one property with $3.5, uh, $350,000. Here's the total property values for just the rentals. So you can see these are the rental property values they are increasing and then they're increasing over time versus the one that didn't go to college. 
And then here's the total amount that they invested in rentals, including any negative cash flow. So in order for the person who invested in real estate and decided not to go to college, they needed, they started with $100,000, but they ended up investing a total over this 10-year period or so, um, about $220,000 total. So where did some of that money come from? Some of it came from cash flow. A lot, most of it came from the initial $100,000. But that $100,000, anything that they left in the stock market when they weren't using to buy properties is earning 8% per year. Plus they're getting cash flow on their properties. Plus they're getting a little cash flow from depreciation. And so a combination of those things is what allows them to go save up. And they've got roommates the first four years. So that's going to be extra income. This is the amount of equity they have. So it's not just the person who invested in real estate doesn't just have, you know, cash in the bank and this cash flow coming in. They also have equity tied up in properties. And remember, our, our calculation for whether or not they achieve financial independence, what is that made up of? It's made up of cash flow from properties and 4% of any money invested in the stock market. So we don't take into account equity at all when someone is trying to qualify for financial independence. Do I say something? Uh, no, there's just a question that says, you know, oh. would a would a non-college grad making 50K a year actually qualify for these loans? I have a chart coming up. Right. Yeah, it's close. It's super right. close. Uh, so here's their total equity in inflation adjusted dollars. Um, but basically they have, you know, almost three and a half million dollars worth of equity when all the properties are paid off. Here's their total account balances. So you could see early on, the person who didn't go to college ends up, with a little bit more money. Then it switches over so that the person who did go to college ends up with more money in their bank account because the one that's investing in real estate can continues to convert that to equity and properties. The person who is investing, uh, who went to college is investing in the stock market, that shows up in their bank account. So their bank balance is actually higher until you get to this inflection point at where the person who decided to invest in real estate just overtakes them because their cash flow is so strong. Okay. This is a zoom in showing you what happens to their bank account balances early on. So you could see the person who decided to invest in real estate, they, they spend part of their $100,000 in order to acquire the first one with down payment. Then their account balance is growing slightly, almost gets back up to the 100K over this period of time from rent from their uh, roommates, two roommates at $500 a month. So an extra $1,000 a month for that first time and the 8% they're earning on like the $80,000 they have left in the stock market. So they get back up close to where it was. Then they do another down payment. Then they grow back a little more Then they do another down payment. Then they grow back some more down payment, down payment, down payment, down payment until eventually they get to the point where they stop with down payments and they are just letting that account grow. Whereas the person going to college does the college, they don't have, they're not getting money from roommates. So theirs is growing at a little lower rate Then they pay their next year of college grow in a little bit, 8% in the stock market, next year of college, grow, next year of college. And then eventually they start saving up from their job and then they have enough for their down payment. They buy their property and then they let it grow and they continue to invest toward their financial independence and retirement. Make sense? Okay. Total account balances, just, just zoomed out a little bit more. Now this is 20 years. You can see that the person who's going to college has a lot more in their bank account, but you'll notice this weird inflection point. What do you think happened here, Brian? Uh, they quit their job. Yep, they quit their job. They actually achieved financial independence right here and they stopped working. We're going to go over that here in a second, but that's why this suddenly changed. So at the end, after 40 years, the person who decided to go to college 
has about $1.7 million in inflation-adjusted money. The person who decided to invest in real estate in their bank account has about $3.2 million. So that's significant to me. How much money if they wanted to go and sell their properties and liquidate some stuff? This is how much equity they have, literally millions of dollars in equity on their properties if they decide to sell with an agent. Uh, If they are selling with an agent in inflation adjusted dollars, it's millions of dollars up to like almost three point something low threes. Um, If they sell with an agent, they have to pay a sales commission to do that toward the end. Early on, they don't have much, but it grows over time. And the person who went to college has their one property. They can always sell with an agent and cash out if they need to. Uh, Here's if they want to do a cash out refinance instead of actually selling it, they could just access any of this money by doing a cash out refinance, pulling money out of their property, and they would trade future cash flow for cash now by doing the cash out refinance. Okay. And this is the inflation adjusted version of that showing you that they've got still over $2 million, you know, year 30 something uh, by the time they get to that point. Net worth. The person who didn't go to college, just crushes it net worth wise. So they have a much higher net worth than someone who decides to go to college. Um, You can see an inflation adjusted dollars. It's still significantly different. Here's the year 40 numbers. By the time you get to year 40, the person who went to college has just over $2 million in net worth. The person who decided to invest in real estate has just over $6.7 million. So the difference in net worth is hugely significant. However, the person who decided to invest in real estate took on a lot more debt. It was extremely aggressive debt taking on uh, their mortgage balances at the peak were probably almost $3.5 million. Whereas the person who went to college only has one property and they have like no other debt besides that one property they invest in stocks. Yep. Brian is taking a beating. So did you include in here, like getting raises across the years? And... 3% per year for both of them. Yeah. That's unrealistic. Okay. I mean, this is the challenge with this, right? No, I'm kidding. Yeah. And I think 3% per year is, a, is an inflation adjustment to that. But yes, yeah. totally. I mean, I agree with you. We could, we could say the person who goes to college gets much faster raises or they get a lot more right. than $30,000. I mean, there's right. all sorts of ways to handle this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. I'll take a beating. Okay. So here's their paychecks. I kind of just want to walk you through what's going on. So this is the sum of all the paychecks. And I made the income they got from their roommates as like a paycheck. So you can kind of see this. So the person who invested in real estate, now they're earning $50,000 a year, which is like 40 something, 4,200 or so, whatever it is per month. But they're getting an extra $1,000 a month by having these two extra roommates. And so you could see that it's really the 5,200-ish or so for that first 48 months. As soon as they get, this is the red line, as soon as they get to the 48 months, they stop having roommates. They only have roommates for the first four years. My thought was this. Someone who decides to skip college for that first four years when they otherwise would have been in college, let's have them have roommates just like the person who's in college has roommates. I thought, let's make it similar. So you have roommates for the first four years. Okay. Are you going to do this scenario where we actually make it similar and the guy who goes to college or the woman who goes to college buys a house and has roommates while they're at college? No, I didn't okay, do that one. Because that would be similar. Yeah, and it, what's, what's better than the person who, who uh, doesn't go to college and nomads? The person who goes to college and starts nomading at right. time zero. <laughs> yes, of course. That's like the best plan of them all. Sure, nomad and go to college. You get the best of both worlds. Absolutely. Right, yes, right. Totally. so there you go. 
Yeah. Uh, college Tammy's, waste. Tammy's smirking at me as she walks by. She's like, what? Okay. So uh, basically, here's what it is. They have, he has roommates. Then he stops getting roommates. He's just got his job income. Then he continues to have his job income until he doesn't need to work anymore. And he actually achieves financial independence. Then he quits his job and his income goes to zero, except for the cash flow from properties. The person who goes to college has no income for the first 48 months. Month 49, they get a job where they earn $80,000 a year. And they continue to earn their $80,000 a year adjusting for inflation until the point where they're able to achieve financial independence and they stop working. You guys don't need to try to figure out the difference in time. I'm going to show you here in a second. Okay. But you can see that this one ends up being financially independent way sooner than the person who decides to invest in stocks and go to college. Okay. This is if we adjust for inflation. So now you can see it's basically earning the same amount of money for the first 48 months. Then he decides not to get roommates. He's earning the same amount of money he was earning if you adjust for inflation. And then he quits his job. And same thing. Person who goes to college, gets their college job, their post-college job, earns the same amount and quits their job. So this is the inflation adjusted version of that same chart. So total amount saved, the person who invested in real estate, this first month is that month when you don't have a mortgage payment. So it looks really weird. But basically, they're able to save like a little less than that $1,000 per month that they're getting from their um, their uh, roommates. And they have that a little over $1,000 a month that they're getting for the first 48 months. Then they don't have almost any savings. It's basically zero. The only reason that they have a little bit is because um, when you own a property the mortgage payment stays fixed. And so you end up gaining a little bit of ground by having your, um, your income going up a little bit, but your fixed part of your principal and interest part of your payment staying the same. So they're really not saving that much. It's essentially zero. And then right here is when they quit their job and now they're having this negative amount of money that they need to support themselves. And then they need less money to support themselves when they pay off their final mortgage. And so that's what they need there. This one is the person who goes to college. All their living expenses, everything are covered for that first 48 months when they're in college because it's room and board in college. Then they go and they uh, rent their room. They rent a room while they're waiting to uh, um, you know, buy a house. And so their expenses, um, their, the amount that they saved increases while they're renting a room because it's a little bit lower than what their cost is going to be when they live in the property. When they buy the property here, their amount that they're saving goes down, but they're still saving like over $2,500 per month toward their retirement. And they continue to do that until they get to this point where they quit their job. And now this is their living expenses moving forward. This is where they pay off their house. Okay. This is them compared on the same chart. You can see the person who didn't go to college pays off the property that they're living in later than the uh, person who was in college because that person bought their property. And the one that the the college person actually bought their property as soon as they got out of college where the other person was continuing to acquire. And so they had a few more properties to buy before they got to the one where they were going to live in permanently. All right. This is the same thing. Inflation adjusted. They're not going to go into a ton of detail, but it's the same numbers I just showed you, except I made them so that they're inflation adjusted. The lines are more flat because their numbers are pretty similar. Here's their personal expenses. You can see that the personal expenses for them to live are very similar. The one that decided to invest in real estate has slightly higher personal expenses because he continues to buy or, uh, acquire new properties. And so that's a little bit higher than the person who bought one property and just lived there. Except when the person who went to college, they pay off their mortgage, their expenses go way down. And the person who uh, went to college or didn't go to college uh, pays off their property later before they get to be about equal. And this is the personal expenses adjusted for inflation. All right, let's talk about when they achieve their goal. 
which is really what we want, right? Like when did they both achieve financial independence? The person who invested in real estate achieved their goal just under 150 months or so. The person who decided to go to college achieved theirs after 300 months. 157 months versus 311. That's the actual numbers. So squint really hard twice as fast, right? Because 160 and 320, that'd be about twice as fast. I, I, didn't, I didn't graduate from college. So Brian, do you want to check that with your engineering degree? Yeah, it's close. All right, took a drink for effect. Yeah, so basically it's way, way faster for somebody to do it. So well, the other thing I want to point out about this is when Brian goes to college and he's saving, you know, a ridiculous percentage of his salary, I mean, 30000 of the $80,000 salary and investing that in the stock market, what else is super fascinating is even when he achieves his goal and he no longer needs to work, he doesn't have a lot more than what he um, what his, his, his current standard of living was, replacing that $50,000 a year. It's not like he achieved more than, way more than 100% of his goal. He's making up a little ground here, but the person who invested in real estate, right here is where they can replace the income, the $50,000 a year that they were living on. But right here, like even before Brian is able to retire by going to college, the person who invested in real estate could have been living at literally two times the standard of living, 200% of the goal of $50,000 a year. They could have been living at $100,000 a year in today's dollars uh, before Brian got to the point where he could retire. Yeah, this is like really dumb Brian versus like really yes, smart I James. Totally like, this agree. is such a terrible scenario. Yes, like, I agree. You look at the actual, like you can't say it's twice as fast because like for the most part, even if you started earning 50K as a skilled laborer, the chances that you're going to get 3% raises for the rest of your career are pretty low. Whereas in some fields of the cosery, it's probably pretty low too. But in others, it's not. It's like a crazy, like you just hosed Brian here. I mean, you I just really I totally, did. I totally agree. And I'm not trying to pick on it. I didn't even know you were going to be on the webinar. Yeah, I So yeah. it wasn't like I was trying to set you up for failure. And yeah, I mean. You you, you thought I wasn't going to be on the webinar. And so you were just going to be like, <laughs> so this is why Brian sucks. That's You'll what notice your, name, your name is not on here as like, oh, let's pretend this is Brian. In, yeah. other, web, in other webinars, I've actually shown you in a hat with, yeah. like your little, with your little beer bottle and your baseball cap on. Okay. So you guys can see this. And, and in fact, they get to the point it's not that long after Brian retires going to college that the other, the non-college go in person actually hits three times the income they need $150,000 a year in today's dollars. And they get to the point where they hit, did they get to, I can't see underneath my thing. Yeah. Five they get half. five times, five and a half times what they're doing in 40 years. Yeah. I mean, this is the hockey crazy. stick thing, right? It That's is. what's going on there. It's like, once you hit that curve and you hit that threshold, whoop, it's, it's amazing. Totally agree. Okay. Here's an interesting thing though. You know, one of the, th one of the things I like to look at is how risky is a strategy, right? And risk is a weird thing because you have to compare it to an alternative strategy you're doing. It's, you can't look at this in a vacuum. You can't just say risk is X. You need to say risk of this strategy is more than the risk of this strategy by comparing the two. And so one of the ways that I like to look at risk is your ratio of your total debt, the amount of debt you're carrying, compared to your net worth. Brian, if I tell you I have a million dollars in debt, does that concern you? No. 
Yeah. And it, for most people, if I told them that I have a million dollars of debt and they're thinking I earn $50,000 a year and I have a net worth of $64,000, that would be a lot of debt for a little bit of net worth. But if I have a net worth of $10 million and the and my, and my debt is only a million dollars, that's a relatively low amount of debt compared to my net worth. And so that's what we're looking about, looking at in this particular chart. This gives you an idea of how much debt each person has compared to their overall net worth. And the person who chose to invest in real estate actually has lower debt to net worth ratio for most of the thing, except later on. And so here's what happens. Because they started off with $100,000 and they bought a property, they have this, this level of debt. Each time they buy a property, it raises their kind of like debt to net worth ratio. But like right here where Brian actually gets out of college and he buys his first property, he doesn't have very much money left in the bank because he spent it all on college. He has this amazing asset, his ability to earn and make $30,000 more than I'm able to earn because I didn't go to college. But as far as like money in the bank, as far as like paper assets, the assets that are like measured on a like a, uh, a balance, what's balance statement? Is that the one? The balance statement? Then, you know, he looks like, Brian looks like he's crazy high debt to net worth. Now, his comes way down very quickly because he only bought one property. And, and the, the debt I have when I continue to acquire properties is a little bit more than his. But for a period of time, he actually is riskier than it is for me. Kind of crazy, right? Okay, so that's just that yeah. interesting. Do we actually ever do a chart that is uh, if you go back a slide here, do we do a total debt to gross income chart ever? No, but I'll make a note because that we probably is totally do that chart. We should do this a whole. This is like my yes. reserves class coming. It's going to be debt. But the debt thing, to that, the, the thing that sparks this particular one is that you say, you know, hey, I have a million dollars in debt. Does that concern you? Well. I mean, I, I just said no, because in general, I, I mean, if you told me it was all on like cars or TVs, I'd be like, yes. But, yeah. you know, if it's all on real estate, no. But I think my next question would probably be, you know, what is your gross income every month or every year to handle that debt? Totally. And there's another one that we need to do too, which is debt to liquid net worth, because yeah. this one is actually equity too. And equity is not the same. Right. So th there's there's more charts excuse me, coming and I'm doing a whole bunch of programming. So they'll be added and there's going to be a whole class on reserves and stuff, but good point. Very good point. All right. So here's another chart, which is also another way that I think about how risky a portfolio is. And that is how many months of reserves a person has to, to be able to hold their, their position. So basically it is their total account balances divided by any operating expenses and mortgage payments they have and any expenses they have from like living expenses and stuff like that from rules, okay? So you can see here that early on when you're going to college, you have very little expenses. So you're like months of reserves. Um, it's kind of like really low for there. And then when it kind of, when you, when you buy your first property, it kind of bumps up maybe a little bit higher than what mine was, but then you end up having a ton of liquidity, you have all of your money in the stock market, which is like the ultimate liquid kind of asset to have. If you need to spend, you need to like liquidate some of your stocks in order to get at it, in order to do something, that's awesome. And that's why you have this huge number of months of reserves growing in your account. Whereas me as the investor here, I have 
you know, some months of reserves early on because I started with 100K and I only had one property. But each time I add one, my liquidity goes down. Like the number of months of reserves I have continues to drop until I'm done acquiring properties in this case. And then it slowly begins to rise as I replenish my cash accounts. And a lot of these expenses are not growing nearly as fast. And eventually you get to the point where I have really good liquidity. But for a while there, it's pretty touch and go. It's a little risky to do this, right? Okay. Any questions? Uh, just would be interesting to look at people starting with only 20 K and the college kid having to finance education. Yep. I'm going to give you the ability to copy these scenarios into your account. And then you could change any of the assumptions and rerun these. Cause I, I do think there are a lot of variations of this that are not the same, like, you know, deciding you are going to finance your education. And now and instead of being able to save $30,000, it's $30,000 minus the cost to repay your loan. And maybe you do nomad at the same time. I don't, I don't think this is an either or choice. I mean, we talked about the best strategy of all is go to college, get your degree and buy properties while you're in college. That's like awesome. That's like, you know, nomad by proxy, have your parents co-sign for you where you're not working, but you had this money from grandma, take out the loans to pay for college if you have to, and go ahead and buy the properties with the money and continue to do like a hybrid slash both of these. I think there's a compelling case to do that. Oh, I zoomed in on these months of reserves for you. So you could see early on, I eventually get to the point where every time I acquire a new property, my number of months of reserves is dropping, dropping, dropping a little bit too close for my personal comfort. But this is like, you know, someone who did this strategy, right? And then Brian is just growing massively as soon as he starts putting money in the stock market. Okay. So where was the question before? Can, can this person actually qualify for the loans? And the honest answer is it's really close, but probably not. So I show you like how much money they need to be earning in order to be able to qualify for the next loan. So for the first few, sure, they're able to qualify for the loan, especially since they're really earning about you know, $4,200 a month plus about $1,000 extra for having roommate income. So it's really like 52. So if they kept the roommates for the whole time, yes, they'd be able to qualify indefinitely for the loans as of right now with the numbers we're actually seeing in the, in the, in the modeling. But you know, you have a property value go up faster than 3% or interest rates rise and you don't have quite the cash flow you were expecting to get or any of these other things, it could definitely impact it. But if you were looking to see if you could qualify for how much money you needed to make in order to do this, it looks like it peaks out to me at around $4,800 a month. And I think we said the whatever 50,000 divided by 12 is, I don't know, Brian, if you have a calculator, but I think it's like 4,200 or 4,166 or something like that is what it ends up being for monthly income. You want 52,000? Is that what you said? No, 50. 50 divided by um, 12. Oh, yeah. It's 41.66. Yeah. So they're actually earning 41.66. And so they would really need to be getting roommate income in order to technically qualify for some of this stuff. So to answer your question, they probably would have a hard time qualifying. Now, Brian, who went to college, he's only buying one property, super easy for him to qualify for that loan. And if Brian decided to do this same nomad strategy, I'm going to show you a chart of that. And he could much more easily afford to do this strategy with $80,000 a year. And that's one of the lessons to take away from tonight's class is if you go to college and you have really high income, it makes it super easy to qualify for loans. It makes it easier for you to be an investor. Okay. All right. Here's an alternative way of thinking about this. After doing the whole class, I started thinking to myself, you know, this makes sense to me because of what I'm about to show you. So in college, you invest $100,000 in college to earn $30,000 more per income, 
per year in income. So you're sort of like making an investment. You're investing the 100K into your own self and yourself now generates an additional $30,000 index for inflation return per year. Think about it that way, okay? You gonna say something, Brian? Okay, the real estate investor, instead of investing $100,000 into themselves to be able to earn $30,000 more per year, instead, they make this $100,000 investment into real estate and they earn this. This is a property. So they earn about $10,500 in return from appreciation, property values going up, which is speculative. There's no guarantee that that's going to happen. Sometimes it's more than that. Sometimes it's less. Sometimes it's negative. Then they have cash flow. For the first year, their just cash flow return is negative $852 per year. That's what it was there. The tax benefits they earned is positive $1623. So with the tax benefits and the cash flow combined, it's actually slightly positive cash flow. So they're not actually losing money when you take into account the tax benefits they're getting. So they're positive like 800 bucks or so between the two of those. And cash flow is also somewhat speculative. We don't really know what rents are going to do. It's one of the more variable ones. We don't know how the market's going to perform. Tax benefits, though, are based on tax code. You're getting that unless the tax code changes. And then debt pay down. You're paying down about $7,236 per year um, in the first year by paying down the loan. And that's like a contract between you and the lender. So it doesn't matter what the market does. The market can go up, market can go down. You got that return. You add all three of these up and you made about 18507 But what's interesting about this is when you did the 100000 in college, you earned $30,000 per, per year, indexed for inflation. And these are somewhat indexed for inflation. I mean, debt pay down goes up. Tax benefits stays the same. Cash flow is probably going up. Appreciation may go up a little bit as you get compounding on the, on the property thing. But what's different between the $30,000 per year versus investing the 100000 in real estate? Brian, you want to guess? You don't have appreciation on the stuff you bought. No, it's times four. Oh, is you bought four properties. So what's crazy to think about is in one case, you did $30,000 a year in extra income. In this other case, you bought four of these things. So instead of getting 18,005, you got, I'm just going to run down to 18,000. You got 18 plus 18 is 36 plus 18 is 48 plus 18 is 60 something, some 61. Yeah, I don't have a college degree. So what does it work out to be? 30, uh, 36, 72, 72,000 and change. So plus another 2,000, so 74,000. Math courses in college, did you take those? I did take a couple math courses. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Listening to you go 36 oh, plus 18 48 oh, was pretty good. God. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it goes to show. You don't need to do, be able to do math successfully. Do this and like who, who adds the number like together four times instead of adding it twice and then multiplying by two. Like, I'm like, what kind of strategy is that? Like, sometimes, terrible. sometimes it's easier to get there to double something than yeah, it is just to go four times 20 and then subtract the eight. There's this difference. Even. We could do a whole class on like the cheat ways to like do math. And I bet you mine are different than yours. Cause I, I do sure. some really weird shortcuts, yeah. which are sometimes way wrong by the way, as evidenced by tonight. Oh my gosh. Okay. So the interesting thing though, is it's times four. So instead of earning $30,000 per year more in income, you're now earning 70, do we determine 74? 74K. That's crazy, right? And honestly, some of this is speculative. Like the whole top is probably pretty speculative, but just the like quote, quote, guaranteed returns, the debt pay down and the tax benefits alone, that's like what, eight? uh, So it's like 9,000, nine times four, 36, 
that's more than the 30,000 by itself. It's nine says four is 36, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm just laughing because you're doing it out loud. It's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm just, I'm just doing this. Like even the two that are like quasi guaranteed, the, the contract you have between the lender, if you make that loan payment, you get that return and the tax benefits, which unless they change the tax code, you're getting that. It doesn't matter if these actually stay where they are. They could be zero for all we care. Yeah. You're still getting more than the $30,000 a year. And so when I, when I hit that way of the alternative way to think about it, I was like, yeah, that's crazy to think about it that way. Yeah, CC points out that in the first year they probably don't have depreciation because they're living in it. Yeah, this is year two. Oh well, there you go. Yeah, year two. Yeah, I I just assume that's the it's the year you convert it to a rental. Gotcha. Yeah, you're totally right. Okay, so is Nomad an unfair advantage? Like we've been comparing this all night, and I thought one of the complaints that people would make, although Brian didn't make this complaint specifically, was James. Okay, you're having them do Nomad, and you're having the the college guy invest in stocks. Yeah, what happens if the guy that does the does college goes and he starts investing in real estate afterward, and he's got this amazing income? I agree with you. So remember, we assume college primarily invests in stocks market eight percent. What if college person Brian? excuse me, nomads after college. It's certainly easier to qualify for loans. That is faux show. All other assumptions are the same. Here it is. So basically this is the person who decided to invest from the beginning. They acquired 10 properties in about 10 years or so. And the person who went to college waited until they got out of college, they bought their first property. And then they were able to just buy their 10 and get caught up over the next, whatever that was. Okay. So they end up doing it really, really fast and they get caught up and they have the same number of properties. They know years later, right? Probably. Yeah. Probably four years later. I mean, it's four years because it's college. Well, it's not technically because they didn't have any income and there was a couple month period where they needed to save up for their first down payment. Oh, gotcha. So there's a little bit of a delay in there, but they should be able to save up enough every single year with $30,000 extra per year in order to buy the next property. Right. You would think yep. that they'd be able to do it. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure if this was exactly 12 months. I think it was for the, for the non-college kid. So, sure. so here's another thing. So remember we talked before about like getting this return from, you know, appreciation and this return from debt pay down and return from, you know, cash flow and all that other stuff. Mm-hmm. I wanted to just show you that, it's still the person who invested in real estate got that return earlier and it still peaked out. So it's, it's interesting though, the, the kind of like charts look very similar, but they're staggered. So there's a delay still in doing this, right? Because you ended up going to college. Same thing with cash flow. The person who invested in real estate got their cash flow return way earlier, but then the person who went to college got their cash flow return here. And you know, they're very, very similar throughout this period. And then eventually the person who invests in real estate, they start paying off their properties earlier and their cash flow improves and it takes a little bit longer for the person who waited to go to college and then started doing the nomad for them to really get their free and clear cash flow to start boosting. And then here's their true cash flow. Same thing. There's just a delay. And the uh, person who went to college gets it a little bit earlier. So it's a little bit higher, sort of same thing, but it's shifted basically a little bit to the right. Uh, did I do this? Oh, this is the inflation adjusted one. So you can still see with the inflation adjusted one, they're still trying to hit that like $4,000 a month and, and they, they both do it. It doesn't take that long. We'll get to the exact times. And then the total property values are able to acquire the properties to when they both get 10. Since they're buying the exact same properties, they both get to the point where their property values align. They're, they own 10 properties that are worth the exact same amount. Just the person who went to college is buying slightly more expensive properties, right. which I'll show you here in a second. Oh, I just want to show you that they're the same here. So this is where I was trying to show you before that um, they are slightly more expensive. So the 
the total amount of the mortgage payments for the rental properties is more for the person that went to college because they bought more expensive properties a little bit later. And so when they financed them, their 95% of their purchase price was a higher dollar amount. So their monthly payment was higher. So they end up having slightly worse cash flow. See that? And it takes them longer to pay them off because they bought them later. So that's why these two charts look the way they do. Okay. And their total mortgage balances, the person who went to college and nomaded afterward, they end up taking on slightly more debt. They have a lot more income to handle the debt, but they ended up taking on slightly more debt because they ended up buying slightly more expensive properties a little bit later. And you can see that in these charts of mortgage balances. And then the total amount that they invested in rentals, including negative cash flow, the person who went to college and nomaded after has slightly higher amount that they had to invest including how much negative cash flow they had to invest just a little bit more. Difference is about, I don't know, 210, maybe 250, maybe, I don't know, 215, and then a little less than 250. So about $35,000 more to go to college. So one year's, a little bit more than a year's worth of income earned differential. Account balances. The account balances look really similar between the two. One slightly takes over the other, but they look uh, about the same as they did for there. Does that include stock or no? Yes. Because any money in the stock market is earning 8% per year. So this is the, how much money they have in the account. This still includes the extra 30K inflation adjusted that he's earning? Yes. I mean, when you think about this, Brian, the, the oh. amount of like appreciation and debt pay down you're getting on 10 properties dwarfs a $30,000 a year pay difference. Agreed, but it's yeah. yes. So that's why it doesn't make that big of a difference. It does make a difference, but he also, it's also buying slightly more expensive properties a little later too. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. Goals. So wait, go back two slides. So go to college is ahead until like 360 months, right? Or really close. Yes. And then invest in real estate Slightly goes up, but now go to the next slide. This is just a zoom of that. Oh, it's a zoom. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, this is the first 20 years. This is all 40. Yeah. So it just gives you a lot, of, a little bit more detail of what's going on in there. Gotcha. Yeah. All right, move on. Okay. All right, so goals. So when do they achieve their goal of hitting financial independence? Well, the person who invests in real estate still does it first. Then the person who decides to nomad afterward, and then way later on is the person who invests in stocks and goes to college. This is the difference in months. So 157 months is how long it takes the person who invests in real estate from the beginning in order to hit their financial independence number. Then the person who nomads after they go to college is is done in 183 months, which if my math is right, is like, uh, I don't know, 26 months more. Is that right? A little bit more than two years? Yes. So a little bit more than two years more for the person to nomad after college. Yeah. And so basically going to college and spending four years in college. And then if you started at the same point, even though he's paying more, the person who went to college actually does it faster. If you include those, take those four years out. Yes. So you should go to college people. Yeah. 
I, I, I'm pro college, so I'm not saying don't go to college. Yeah. And then similarly, remember that discussion we had before about, you know, they're actually able to live a two times their current lifestyle or three times their current lifestyle or four times. Well, you have the same effect when you actually do nomad, just like the other person did, because it's the same phenomenon. I mean, you have got 10 rental properties and as they get paid off and cash flows continue to improve, your, your cash flow is amazing. So you can continue to live, you know, 200% of your, uh, you know, target monthly income uh, for retirement, for financial independence. Um, and then, you know, eventually three times, eventually four times. And I can't see behind this thing, but like five times. So you, you end up being just as good, very similar to as good as the going to college, uh, not going to college, uh, invest in real estate person um, comparatively. Net worth wise, very similar. I mean, the person who invests in real estate, has got a little bit of an edge, but it's just staggered by a couple of years, as you can see, is really what it comes down to. And so the net worth difference, if you went to college and didn't do Nomad, it's just over 2 million, if you remember, um, inflation adjusted 40 years from now. If you decide to do the invest in real estate from the beginning, it's about 6.7 million versus about 6.4 million if you decide to do Nomad after you went to college. So squint really hard. That's not big of a difference. That's not that big of a difference, in my opinion. Right. I mean, it's Cost really, you really $280,000 in net worth 40 years later. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not significant. Yeah. So don't like stress out over this. If you're going to college, it's not a big deal. In fact, good for you. I think you should. Yeah. Um, the other once, things that happen in those 40 years will make a much larger difference than totally that. agree. Yeah. <laughs> so how much rent you charge, how you manage your properties, what properties you buy. I mean, there's so yeah. many other things. There's luck of what property you bought at that level. Right. I mean, you yeah, know, and it's how you live your lifestyle. Do you, as your money comes in more, do you choose to spend it? Do you choose to save? I mean, there's so much. Totally agree. You manage your finances. Blah, yeah. Blah, blah. There's so yeah. many. I totally agree. So the months of reserves looks very similar in a lot of ways. Um, eventually, the invest in real estate, their months of reserve looks a little bit better sooner because they end up paying off their properties a little bit faster. Um, you can kind of just see the difference there between that. Uh, this is a zoom in. You can just kind of see they're, they're staggering amongst each other for you know both of them doing Nomad. One of them dips below the other. One of them goes above. One of them dips below until eventually you know the, the one that they invested in college, invested in real estate instead of going to college does a little bit better sooner just because of timing. Now, here's an interesting one, though, and this is actually one of the small downsides, in my opinion, of the go to college versus the um, investing in real estate early, and that is the risk curve of that total debt to net worth again. Because as we showed earlier on, when you start off with 100K as your initial reserve account and you're buying properties, you still have better reserve liquidity, you know, your total debt to net worth number. And so the person who invested in real estate kind of like stays a little bit below around the 500 and then it continues to go down. If you wait four years and then you go to college, you end up taking on a little bit more risk in terms of total debt to net worth because you end up spending all of your 100K on college and then you start acquiring properties. You're really diminishing the amount of money you have every time you buy a property. Whereas the first four or so that you bought with the total debt to net worth, you have reserves. You still have reserves from when that 100K that grandma and mom and dad gave you. So this, of all the cases for like not going to college, this is probably the slide to bring out to mom and dad if you're trying to convince them, hey, mom and dad, instead of me going to college, why don't you give me the money and I'll go invest in real estate? This is the one, right? This is like, hey, if I go to college, my risk curve is a little bit higher compared to me doing it earlier on. But I don't think it's a compelling enough reason. Personally, I think this is like one chart, but really 
I think going to college and being able to earn that extra $30,000 and, and be able to um, qualify for the loans, which I'll show you here next. I think that's a bigger input, a bigger impact. And I think you should go to college for that reason. So I don't know. That's my take on it. Yeah. You comment on that? Um, yeah, there's a lot there. So Andrew says, you know, will going to college likely lead you to being able to analyze properties better depending on what course you do? And I think, you know, part of this is the person that doesn't go to college is straight out of high school. You got to go learn how to invest in real estate, right? The person that has four years in college could learn it during that, right? So it's, it's very, there's that. And then I think, you know, he says, you know, being smart enough to be able to go to college is probably more important than actually going to college. Like, I think no matter how smart you are, you can go to college. I actually think, you know, barring some, you know, cases that are just out of, you know, norm normalcy, right? I think you, anyone can go to college. Uh, it just, you have to apply it. So yeah. yeah. What if I go to college, but live in my parents' basement for the first four years to save $48,000? Yeah. What if you just go to college and buy a nomad property while you're on campus and have a, you know, campus town apartment that appreciates faster than the other stuff around it. Yeah. You know, there's all sorts of stuff. This reminds me of the, like, uh, you know, investing in real estate with starting with nothing but grit and tenacity right. and, and how you can achieve financial independence super, super, super fast is like the fastest strategy of all. If you go listen to that class, but you combine that class with like the, the college nomad ish sort of version of this. Yeah. I mean, that just is going to crush it. I mean, that's like the best of all of them. And there's oh, so many variations, right? I mean, this is the problem with any of this stuff. Yeah. I mean, what happens if you convince your parents when you're 14 to buy you a you know house that you're going to buy from them when you're older at the same price? You know. Yeah. Right. Let what happens know. if you convince your parents to give you a million dollars when you get right. out of, when you get out of high school? There's all sorts of variations on this. Yeah. Okay. So here's that chart about being able to qualify for loans. Yes, you need to have slightly more money. Uh, to be able to qualify for the loans, but someone who went to college has a lot higher income, way more than they need in order to qualify for these loans. An $80,000 a year job, um, 80,000 is what? Uh, six, 7,000 would be 84, 6,500 ish, something like that, somewhere around there. So 6,500, that's, that's off the chart. So you don't need to have that high of an income in order to be able to qualify um, for you to do this. Yeah. You know, and the thing that we haven't talked about is the total flip side of this, which is there are a lot of people that went to college that can't find a job. And I mean, it was mentioned earlier, Starbucks, right? Yeah. That now they spent the hundred K and they yeah. don't have a job that pays 80 K. That's what the article at the beginning was all about. Someone yeah. said that they had like a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt and her husband makes the same salary as she does. And he's a plumber yeah. um, and he has no debt. Right. And there, I mean, and so, you know, going to college or not, like there are a ton of skilled trades where you can go and learn and make really great above the, you know, 40K, 50K mark. You know, if you're a welder or, you know, a plumber or an electrician, like those are, you know, you don't need to go to college, but you still need to put in the time to get there. Yep. All right. Last couple slides. Um, I, I wanted to try to say what happens if we remove the roommates for the first four years for the real estate investor. So no roommates for first four years. So that's no extra $1,000 per month for the first 48 months. What impact does that have? It is even harder to qualify for loans. That's for sure. Um, Cause they were already tight, even like pretending that they had roommates longer than the 48 months. Um, what other differences does this make? All other assumptions are the same. It turns out 
that if you invest in real estate, this is like when they achieve financial independence. If you invest in real estate and you have roommates, it's 157 months to get to financial independence. If you invest in real estate and you don't have roommates for the first four years, it's 169 months or about a year later. If you go to college and then you nomad after, it's 183 months. And if you um, just go to college and you invest in the stock market, you don't do any real estate besides the house you live in, it's 311 months. So the not getting roommates does make a little bit of a difference. Definitely harder to qualify for loans, um, but I, I think it's, it's still doable. And it's faster than if you go to college and you um, start nomading afterward. There's the goals. And you can see all three of them enjoy that better lifestyle than investing in stocks. Net worth difference, investing in real estate and getting roommates, about 6.7 million. Um, going to college and nomading after is about 6.4 million, as is the investing in real estate without roommates. They're both about 6.4. And if you go to college and just invest in stocks, it's about 2 million. And what we're not discussing tonight is... <laughs> is paying off properties early because remember you have a ton of equity. You could literally sell off three of your properties, use that money from the sale in order to pay off the remaining seven or, you know, pay off four and pay off the remaining six or whatever you're going to do. We're not going to discuss that, but that is a way to actually speed up this process and make it even more profound. And you can't do an equivalent with like the go to college investing in stock one. Um, so we're not going to discuss that. We're not going to talk about doing cash out refinances on like a property to live on that money before you're technically really ready to do financial independence and have it fully support you. But you could say, I'm going to cash out refi or sell a property and take that money and just sort of like burn through it, live, live on that money, knowing that the other nine or eight or seven or six properties you have left um, can actually support you from their cash flow as those get paid off over time. Just take one or two of them and just sell it as you need money. And continue to do that. Sort of like what we talked about when we did uh, cash flow versus appreciation with Brian, uh, that other class. But we're not going to discuss that tonight. Nor are we going to say, you know, this guy's got money in his bank account. It's not like he's at zero dollars in his bank account. And he could literally live off of the money in the bank account, deplete that balance down closer to zero, not even at zero, and just let his properties continue to improve their cash flow and kind of coast, what I call it, coast into retirement where you're able to do that. So you actually end up stop working before you're 100% and you use the money in your bank account to kind of bridge the gap between when your properties fully support 100%. And we did not take into account like property values not going up at 3% or rents not going up at 3% or what happens if interest rates are going to go up over the next 10 years, which is probably the case. And, you know, what happens if the stock market does a lot better than 8%, maybe it does negative 30 or positive 40 or whatever it is. So having all those variables and doing Monte Carlo simulations, all that, I just did really simple, straightforward, simple return type math. And any other advanced strategies, we're just not going into all those. These all could be interesting to test and model if this is your plan, right? This is the time where, hey, I'm going to do this. Well, that's when you really buckle down and you decide, I'm going to do a college semester's worth of study of all these different variations so that I'm super educated on the plan I'm going to rely on in order to hit financial independence and retire. Like, you want to actually spend some time doing this stuff and making sure you understand the pros and cons and risks and all that other stuff. Okay. So if you need the links to be able to copy the scenarios, there they are. 
Uh, if you have questions about them, let me know. But those are the shortcut links. You can pause the video if you're watching this as a recording, or um, if for some reason the recording doesn't work, you can email me and I'll send you an email link. But if the video is the up, real question is, what happened to four seven four nine? I probably had like an example. I deleted. <laughs> It happens. Like I'll like do one and I'll be like, yeah, yeah. that's crazy. <laughs> Might've been the one where I had like a uh, go to college was earning a lot more and had to hit a higher number for financial independence. That's probably what it was. I'm going to start typing in random numbers. If you find out that that works, you please should let me know and I'll lock it down because it should be locked down now. <laughs> I'm serious. Uh, yeah. All right, cool. That's all I got for you. I'll leave this on as we take any final questions, but everyone right now is literally typing refp.io forward slash four, seven, four, nine. I tried to make the URL short. I got that special domain just oh, for these shortcuts. Well, so. it goes to copy scenario for four, seven, four, nine. Right. That's what it should go to. Does it say anything on it? Uh, no description of this scenario is included. No accounts, yeah. no properties, no rules, no goals. It's, it's a blank scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. You guys are very welcome. Uh, Gian says, curious, do the spreadsheets take into account stopping tax benefits after 10K hit? What is What does that mean? What is stopping tax benefits after 10K hit? 10K of what? Yeah, I'm not sure I follow your question, Gian. Skylar, you're very welcome. Andrew, you're very welcome. Jason, 200K in law school debt can't pass the bar exam. Yeah, that'd be bad. That'd be really bad. Roger, you're very, very welcome. John, very welcome. Hunter, very welcome. Cece, we had assumed Nomad throughout. What if college Brian bought small multi to increase cash flow? Since with Nomad, you're limited by one year weight. Um. We could definitely run that. I didn't run it. I will tell you, traditionally, Nomad crushes it. Um, You know, if and and part of the challenge is you got to wait to have a big enough down payment to buy the multifamilies in order to do that. Um, So one of the great things about Nomad is instead of having to wait four years in order to acquire a a single 20% down property, you can actually acquire one every year and then get the benefit of appreciation and debt pay down and the cash flow and tax benefits during each year. It's almost like a more frequent, smaller chunks of asset acquisition. Gene says CPA says 750K tax deductions max. Uh, the 750K, my understanding is, uh, I'm looking it up to make sure is mortgage interest. Donna, you are very welcome. Yeah. Um, first, add up any of the itemized deductions you're entitled to. Mortgage interest on as much as 750000 in principle. So I think, yeah, I don't even know what that is. This is some other. Yeah, I don't know. Jason's on here. He can comment. Yeah, I t- talked to your tax advisor. So to yeah. answer your question, does it take that into account? I don't even know what that is. So no. Yeah. Um, and Carlos says, uh, thank you, James Bryan. Excellent presentation as always. You're very welcome. Uh, Andrew says, tax deduction on primary is 750K only as primary. As rental, you can deduct more. Yeah, I didn't realize there was a limit on the rentals. 
yeah. Lindsay says, thank you guys. Nice seeing you again, Brian. I don't get a nice seeing you again. I, look, I should skip class for five months and uh, come you back. You did that and... last year. I taught for five months in a row. <laughs> but Lindsay never that? said, Lindsay never said to me, hey, nice seeing you again, James, after that. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Man. Cece says, but he went to college, makes more money and extra, and therefore uses that for the multi, at least for the first year. Yeah, I don't I don't think oh you're saying like the first property they buy, they do an FHA loan and buy like a fourplex. It's not significantly different. You just it's just not big enough difference. You just don't see it. See yes, um always nice to see you, and it's Nathan typing, so <laughs> okay, fair enough. Oh man. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll see you in 2022. This is your one class for the year. <laughs> oh my gosh that's funny yeah all right guys well this my reward for getting done early is i get to get out of here early so if there's no other questions i appreciate you all coming on hope you guys enjoyed it hope it was what you thought it was going to be most of the time i uh it's like the class is titled one thing and there's a single slide on that topic and there's like 90 slides on some other topic completely yeah you're like what was that yeah. Ice cream I, I would like today. to have seen like just more of the f- more fair scenario, right? Nomad during college and what? If you look, if you nomad during college, it it's beats be everything. awesome. Yeah, because it is basically the I real know. estate investor guy plus thirty thousand dollars extra year in income. Of yeah, course, it's, it's like, going to be better. I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's not making it like a reasonable like head to head comparison. There was yeah, a chance Jason, when- Jason's just throwing shade at me. He's like, "Isn't there already a class for that?" Yeah. <laughs> yes, there is. Uh, the uh, you know, I had to try to make it so that they were close, right? So that yeah, I, you could argue. I don't know which one's going to win with that thirty thousand dollars a year more in income. That's a lot more in income than someone who's doing this. I mean. I could see yeah. it going either way. And then it honestly, turns out it's not even close. isn't even really, I mean, there's a four year delay, but honestly, this is just, you know, should you find a career where you can make more money or not? <laughs> you know, money isn't everything. Some people, Agreed. they enjoy what they do. They, they're yeah. volunteering, they're making whatever. No, no doubt. You should yeah. find, but given the choice between two things you enjoy, if one makes more money and you're interested in <laughs> fire, you should probably pick that one. Probably. Or, or you think to yourself, hey, I could do six years at this really crappy job and then I don't have to work ever again. I could volunteer all my time and do that one thing that right. I love. Yeah. Maybe you do the six years. <laughs> I mean, and I was never like, I thought I was going to be an attorney. Then I thought I was going to be a chemical engineer. And then I was a computer engineer. And that was that. Right. And so like all three of those are probably in the upper end of money making careers, but I didn't choose it because of that. I chose it because it was super interesting. Right. And so I'm sure, you know, uh, there's that's just not everyone, obviously. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. It's tough. All right. Cool. Well, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on. Hope you enjoyed class. Oh, we do have questions. See, like when I'm about to say goodbye, people come up with questions. Yeah. Skylar says, Have you ever read Building Wealth One House at a Time by John Shaw? Yep. Sure did. I actually may have a copy on my shelf. Or maybe I don't. I think I have it on audio now. Um, we believe that you've read it. Yeah, I have read it. It was a long time ago. 
it was it was much closer to when it actually came out. It's been a long time since I read it. Jason, yes, exactly what I was saying. Cool. At least trying to say. All right, cool. Well, if there's no other questions, thank you all for coming. I do appreciate it. Brian, thank you for showing up. Oh, I did I, I wasn't sure if you were gonna show up or not. So thank My you. My pleasure. I wasn't awesome. sure if you were gonna send me a link to even show up, but you did, did. I, did I send you one? Yeah. So, you know, next week, you should make sure you send one if you expect me to be here. I, I don't remember actually sending it to you. Maybe Tammy did it. Well, what's funny is the link I got was like, you're hosting this class. And I was like, oh, that's pretty funny. Oh, maybe you were hosting it. Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. I wondered if you thought we'd just show up and talk about it. <laughs> no prep. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. On that note, thank you, everyone, for coming. I do appreciate it. I will talk to you all soon. Sweet. Have a good night. Bye-bye Bye. for now. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Nomad Real Estate Investing Podcast, produced by James Orr Real Estate Services in conjunction with the Northern Colorado Real Estate Investor Group. Help others find what you're already enjoying by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. For additional information, please visit us at jamesorr.com. For questions, suggestions, or other feedback, please email us at jores at jamesorr.com.